I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to Joseph Carson. Joe is a cybersecurity professional and ethical hacker with more than 25 years experience in enterprise security, specializing in blockchain, endpoint security, network security, application security and virtualization, access controls, and privilege account management. He currently serves as the chief security scientist at Thycotic. Joe is an active member of the cybersecurity community, a frequent speaker at cybersecurity conferences globally, and is often quoted and contributes to global cybersecurity publications. He is also the author of Privilege Account Management for Dummies. Joe regularly shares his knowledge and experience by giving workshops on vulnerability assessments, patch management best practices, and the evolving cybersecurity perimeter in the EU GDPR. In this episode, we discuss his transition from IT to cybersecurity, privacy versus security, IoT privacy, credential management, why you shouldn't blame the users, taking a people-centric approach to security, hiring information security professionals, cybersecurity metrics, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Joe, thank you for joining me today on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, and you're, you're a few hours ahead of me. You're out in, uh, <laughs> you're in Estonia right now. That's correct. Um, I'm based in Estonia. I've, I'm not I'm not a not Estonian native. Um, I've actually been living here. Uh, it's just coming up on 14 years now. So so quite a lengthy time in Estonia, uh, but originally from uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Gotcha. Now, how did you get started in information security? Um, it's actually you know my entire career has been in information security. Um, you know, it dates back to when I was about probably 11 years old, and I was writing programs in BASIC. Um, you know, then it was sometimes you were, you know, writing your own programs. And, and, and my first program was actually creating a football league scoring chart. So, you know, what you would have today on, on you know, you know, soccer, um, uh, tracking the league tables and who scored and, and what the points and so forth were. My first program that I was writing when I was about 11 years old was actually to calculate the scores every single week and then to create a league table out of that. Oh, wow. Um, so so it, it's quite a lengthy, I mean, you know, then... It was a bit challenging by magazines, and you'd follow the books and the, the coding instructions. And then about two months later, you'll find out that they had a mistake on line 10 of something. And it was so frustrating that, you know, <laughs> it was a lot of trial and error then. Um, but I started off from a very, very young age. Yeah, it's funny. I had similar background of, of writing in basic and, and getting those magazines and painfully typing in you know, code after or line after line of, of, you know, go to commands. And I, I think it turned me off from coding for, for a long time. Um, but how, how did that kind of parlay into some, the more of the professional field? And, and where did you kind of get your, your roots as, as an information security professional? Actually, so, so kind of the, the information security professional came probably a, a bit later because then, you know, as I started my career off, it was, it was in 1993. Um, so that's when I would have first delved into not security, but mostly just IT. 
and I was working on projects that was doing data center um, transformation, digitalization. Um, I was working on old uh, IBM mainframes at the time, working on punch cards, um, you know, McDonnell Douglas uh, dumb terminals, and security then was actually a lock on the door. It was, <laughs> you needed a key to access the computer, um, and nothing, you know, once you had access to that, that computer or terminal, um, that's as far as the security went. Um, but then it was, security was not, it wasn't a role or responsibility or it wasn't, you know, something that you did on a day-to-day -day basis. It was part of your job. It was just one, one aspect of the many things that you had to do. Then it was mostly about making sure things just worked, making sure that it was available, making sure that people had access in order to do their jobs. For example, that first project I worked on was actually the digitalization of medical records. And it was all about reducing, that time was the ability for a patient to get access to a doctor. And it was reducing patient doctor time from what it should have been about 30 days then down to hours or even, even less than an hour. So it was all about efficiency and improvements and, and enabling people to do their jobs. Um, and that was probably around until you know, about the you know late to nine you know nineties where it was you know then white UK so it was all about bugs and and uh, at that time kind of malware and viruses became a little bit more kind of aggressive and more uh, disruptive. So you'd be working on making sure that at least antivirus and traditional hardening of systems were part you know were, were actually uh, uh, taking place. So it did become a bit more important then. Um, but again, it was still just part of the job. It wasn't until early 2000s when I kind of then transitioned more into um, my security profession. Um, it was when I transitioned, I was doing a lot more in, for example, data center availability. Um, we started getting DDoS attacks and we became secondary victims. And one of the, the kind of, I think there was a moment in time, I, I don't know, kind of you, you're familiar with it, was the, the famous uh, GRC.com DDoS attack? It was the Gibson Research. It right, was probably right. around, yeah, it was probably around 2000, 2001, if I recall. And it was that point in time that really transitioned. That was the time it transitioned me from being just a IT professional um, to really becoming very in kind of intertwined into security. Um, that was probably the transition time that I started looking more into security as a career. Uh, because of that incident that I worked on. Gotcha. And then, and then from there, you, you transitioned into, I would say, you know, kind of some of the bigger organizations like Symantec and, and did a lot of product management from there, if, if I'm correct. Correct. Absolutely. So um, originally I started off in Alteris, which was more about systems management, but security was still a very important part of systems management. It was about hardening systems. It was about patching uh, vulnerabilities and exploits. It was about being able to make sure that those systems uh, were cleaned and the, the configurations were hardened. And then uh, through an acquisition that Symantec made of Alteris, um, of course, that became you know part of the everyday responsibility. And I led uh, during those years, um, you know, many of the different products that you would you know you would see now um, that's being uh, uh, made available from Symantec um, because I would have worked on the early um, kind of innovative products that they were still creating and wouldn't have been available. Gotcha and part of this looks like it, it kind of pulled you around to different parts of the world as well. 
It wow. did indeed. Uh, part of my my uh, role, you know, I was I was very much an evangelist, so I, I was very deep in technology and I knew how everything worked, and because of my you know vast background experience. Um, but my uh, ability, I, I guess, it also comes from my kind of uh, background being from Belfast, um, that we were very social. You know, some people say that was a, where social engineering was first invented, um, <laughs> but pro- probably. Um, but because of our ability to, to also communicate very effectively, um, my role also not just became very in-depth in technology, but I also became a very uh, per, uh, kind of going spokesperson for the company, um, speaking at events, doing executive briefings and helping educate um, and and that took me to to many places around the world. Um, so I, I traveled quite extensively in those years. Yeah, which was was you kind of touched on something I wanted to uh, highlight on that is you know as you traveled around the world, um, did you notice that the attitudes about information security varied in different cultures? <laughs> Absolutely, and not only. So one of the things is I always say that it's quite interesting. I always say that privacy and security are, are one of the equal. Uh, one is an attribute of the other. So um, where security, you know, the, the, the better security you have is the better you can keep things a secret, the better you can keep things private. So that's where, you, you, you know, an attribute of each other is. And as I traveled around the world, I find that um, so people took security in a very dis- different aspect and it was very much that some uh, cultures and mindsets that the understanding of privacy is very different. So privacy um, is very different in regards to even the language and the communication and translation um, as you go from country to country and, and region to region. And that has a massive impact in how people approach security. Um, so yes, absolutely. Security in the global aspect of things, we're not aligned. And likewise in privacy, we're not aligned. Um, and this is, means that as we look at it from a global aspect, it's very difficult for those global corp- com- companies and organizations who are multinational and, 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 and very global around the world. It's very different from them to take a centralized approach to security as well. Yeah, I've seen that with some organizations that I've worked with that have international footprints, you know, particularly if they have uh, in the United States or Europe. And they're, they're so, uh, but particularly in the United States, they're, they're very, um, they take information uh, or intellectual property protection very seriously, where it's almost a foreign concept in, in like certain Asian cultures where you can't really own an idea. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the cultural attitudes uh, have to play. You know, so how, how do you kind of shape that discussion for organizations so you can kind of get everybody to the table and thinking about the global mission or the organization? Yeah, absolutely. It, it becomes very challenging. And not, not only when you're actually doing that from a global perspective and that you're trying to do, um, you know, central strategy and, and, and security policy to make sure that everyone in the organization is aligned and also taking the same mindset. Um, the other challenge is that you also get into the legal aspects of things because then each country also deals with security and privacy uh, from different security and protections um, from, you know, specifically even U.S. to the likes of France, Germany, uh, EU in general, mm-hmm. um, to the likes of India, then China, Russia, and, and uh, Japan and so forth. So not only do you have to deal with the different cultural aspects of things, but each of those also comes with different legal aspects. I can even give you an, an example where we were doing, um, uh, so probably one, a year or two ago now, it was a pen test on a, on a ship. Um, and unfortunately, the ship was in South China Sea. And the only way to get the ship was through China. So um, so the tools that you could take with you to a normal pen test in mainland Europe or, or North America, uh, we couldn't take the same to, to that vessel. 
because of the actual legal aspects of the country you had to go through. You could not take those same because of export import laws mm-hmm. regarding security solutions and so forth and encryption levels. Um, so it really comes down to you really have to, as a company, you really also need to have a good understanding about the countries that you operate in. And I always say that the best approach is to also always take the most strictest um, location. Um, so many companies in the U.S. would take, for example, New York State as the primary location to uh, create the baseline for their security uh, strategy because it has some of the strictest laws. Right. Yeah. I've, I've worked with organizations and kind of given them similar advice is, you know, don't, you know, particularly in the United States, if you have you know, 47, 48 different privacy laws for different states, pick the few that are the, the most stringent and, and make your policies and procedures around that, as opposed to trying to custom make things for every single state or different area you work in. Absolutely. I've, I've had the same in, in uh, companies that's in Africa that provides, for example, services to citizens in, a, in the EU, where the, we've got new, very strict uh, privacy laws and data protection laws that's getting introduced in 2018. And maybe only 10% of their actually customer base is EU citizens. But it's easier for them to take an approach that said, we do it for all of our customers, the same level of uh, security and, and, and strategy and privacy, rather than trying to mix and match it, uh, because ultimately it just means that you're likely going to, you're not going to do it that well. Yeah, and that you know that comes down to uh, some also you know, recent changes where uh, in the UK that they're saying you know firms can now face some serious fines of uh, seventeen million pounds or up to four percent of global turno- turnover if they fail to protect themselves from cyber attacks. Uh, the government's warm, and they also want you know it said in, in recent studies that nearly half of British firms had some sort of attack or breach in the last year. We had the GDPR coming down with uh, some serious privacy fines. Do you think measures like these that are kind of uh, pushed out by governments are going to start encouraging organizations to actually take their security a little bit more seriously? Absolutely. I believe I believe that this is, is a long-awaited um, kind of enforcement. Um, companies for, you know, I used to be on the, the opposite side of the fence uh, 10 years ago on this. Uh, I was part of the original kind of uh, uh, team that was looking at the reviews and the drafts of GDPR and, and other types of legal laws at that time. And I was a bit, uh, from my side, my original personal opinion was that this is really, you know, it's taking a harsh step by companies who's not protecting themselves against, you know, bad people. Um, so I was kind of quite, you know, wasn't getting it. I, I wasn't understanding that. Why are you punishing good companies for, you know, not uh, being able to defend against bad uh, criminals? And then I started kind of, as I get into the more details and when I started looking at incidents and working in a number of uh, different breaches over the years, it was quite shocking the lack of security that companies had taken the lack of, you know, even the basic steps. It was it was actually quite shocking, to be honest, that companies were were providing these services and collecting a lot of data and making a lot of uh, profit on them, um, but at the same time not pre- uh, uh, protecting and securing the data that they were actually um, you know, being empowered with. And at that point in time, uh, it, it kind of switched me to being more understanding and more uh, providing empathy um, into the, the, the citizens that, yes, they do have a, a certain level of uh, security or baseline that they need to have. And companies are not taking it on their own accord, so therefore it does require some regulation or some baseline um, specifically to say that this is the minimum security that you need to do. And at the same time, it's also created the foundation and the framework to also look at IoT and the industrial internet as well to make sure that as we're kind of moving down that path, that also needs to have some level of baseline as well. 
Yeah, that it seems to be that that companies now or yeah, as you said, they're kind of willing to take people's money and, and give them products. Uh, but as they collect information of, and particularly connect things and devices to the internet, there's a greater responsibility for them to kind of protect that their customers or citizens um, where, where their customers live or operate. Yeah, you, you look at um, one of the, my big concerns, and this is something that I've raised a lot with the uh, European Union and Council, is that if you buy hardware today, you know, you know, even 10 years ago, you bought hardware, you owned everything, you owned the data, the, everything that was on that hardware, and your cyber insurance only give you, you know, the coverage of physical damage. So that's where you can, that's where it started and stopped. Uh, fast forward to today. You buy a hardware, and I actually get I get really upset with the telco providers. I get so upset um, it, because you own the hardware, but they own the data. Mm-hmm. You buy a TV, and you basically one one thing I get upset about is you go buy a TV, a smart TV from a store or online, and when you buy that TV, it says nothing about um, the actual vendor or the manufacturer owning the data. But when you get it home and you power it on, you turn it on, you connect it. It says that, okay, in order for you to uh, use these services, you have to share certain data with the manufacturer. The manufacturer owns the data that that uh, television uh, collects. And this is quite shocking because at the time of purchase, that was not something that you were informed about. It's not until you actually power it on, turn it on, that you have to accept these terms and conditions that now says that, okay, the manufacturer actually owns the data that my television uh, generates. Therefore, they can get to see what stations you watched, how long you watched for, potentially even have access to the audio, video. All of that data that's created is no longer owned by the actual uh, the uh, consumer or the actual uh, purchaser. It's all owned by the manufacturer, which is quite concerning. Um, if you look at the, what was it, the recent, uh, uh, the vacuum cleaner, um, the smart uh, vacuum cleaner, um, there was a potential sell, selling of the actual um, or, uh, mappings of people's homes because those were actually collecting um, all of the logistics and the, the data and size and square foot off people's uh, sitting rooms and, and places where they're actually uh, cleaning. And that data has been uh, sent to the manufacturer and made available. Um, so you get into these types of issues about, okay, where does, where does data ownership and where does data security stop and start? Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that. We, my wife and I recently got a car, and I noticed when it turned it on, it's now a connected car, and it, it, it flashes up on the, the little panel of, by the way, we're collecting this type of data. You really don't have a chance to opt out, and once you have the car home, it's not like you can you know, make a lot of choices afterwards, but it, it's collect, you know, all these things are collecting a lot of data, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, you know, with things like GDPR and the ability to have access to your data, know where your data is, have it deleted and kind of the right to be forgotten. Um, do you think Do you think the citizens of the world have enough of a fight in that or is it still going to be corporations being heavy handed and, and still having control over the data? I, I think it's going to be a mix of both. I think it's going to be a, a, a bit of a, a shove and pull that um, companies will be saying, well, in order for you to get the services, you have to give up something or give up some type of consent. So I think it's going to be a, a, a bit of a kind of push and shove between the consent war um, into, you know, how much services you're willing to and how much data you're willing to, to give up um, in order to get access to these uh, these uh, kind of online services or, or additional uh, functionality. Gotcha. Now, kind of uh, turning to to what you're doing now, you're, you're the chief security scientist at Thycotic. You know, what does that title mean and what are some of your roles and responsibilities? 
So, so correct. Um, my main responsibility at Thycotic is Thycotic is a company that we really, you know, we protect and secure privilege accounts. So anything that has sensitive access, service accounts, domain accounts, and root accounts, and so forth. And my primary role at the company is I do a lot of the research uh, into what's happening in the threat landscape. Um, I have a very good connectivity or communication uh, between you know good and bad hackers. Um, I get a lot of insights into where the technology is going. I have a lot of good overview into the industry as an entirety as a whole. And I use a lot of that uh, knowledge to really see where's the industry going, what's the weaknesses, uh, what are the ways and techniques that hackers are exploiting uh, companies. And then really using that insights to conduct research in order to help us um, as a company make sure that we're actually creating the right products doing the right integrations and also have the right vision and to ensure that we can actually make sure that we do the best as what we can uh, to protect privilege accounts. Yeah, I found, you know, particularly with your enterprise products for password management, like Secret Server, to be particularly helpful. <laughs> um, you know, I use, use it quite extensively um, in lab management and infrastructure management because we see, um, you know, credentials still being a, an issue after all these years. It's, it's credential management still seems to be a big, big problem for individuals and organizations. Yeah, but I, I even it was quite interesting of being in this role and, and, and really I looked at a lot of reports and, you know, at the, at, at the core of it, we're managing passwords and keys and credentials and accounts that have sensitive access. And I wanted to, I, so I conducted a bit of research end of last year and I wanted to know, well, you know, everyone keeps saying passwords are dead. And I started going, well, okay, if passwords are dead, where, where does that leave our vision? Where, where, where are we going in the future? What do we need to create in order to, to protect the next thing, you know, whether it being IoT or, or industrial internet? So I started doing a lot of research to really, I, I wanted to challenge the question, is passwords really dead? And what is the footprint of passwords? So I conducted a bit of research uh, that was uh, joined with uh, Cybersecurity Ventures. Uh, so myself and Steve Morgan, we, we worked together in this uh, research, and I was kind of doing a lot of the data uh, crunching in the background. And what was quite concerning was that, you know, over the years, you know, Bill Gates has said it back in, I think it was 2004, password are dead. Then it was recited again by uh, IBM and then Google and so forth uh, over, many, you know, several years in the early, uh, you know, 10, 2011 or so. And it all been recited that was going to be replaced by biometrics or additional you know, levels of authentication and so forth. But when I really started looking into it, that none of those technologies were ever replacing it. What they were doing was augmenting it. They mm -hmm. were moving passwords to the background and not the foreground. It was really enabling kind of other factors in order to interact with a human. But at the same time, it was still a password and it was still some type of multi-factor authentication in the background that was just being augmented by biometrics. Um, just like you have on your iPhone when you know you're using you know, your fingerprint to unlock it, but every time you reboot it, you need a pin. Every time you need to go and uh, re you know access your account, you need to enter a password. So at the same time, it was simplifying the interaction between humans and devices and applications, applications and so forth. But at the same time, passwords were were growing astronomically. And what I ended up finding was around the end of last year, I found that in the industry it was about it was close to 100 billion passwords in active use. So that's you know 100 billion, and we have a, a internet population of around three and a half billion people using it, and then with devices. And what we ended up find was that the number of uh, passwords per per user per per uh, system was multiplying significantly. Where we kind of average, we're around 29 
to 36, depending on country, location, and, and, and uh, usage per person. And that's going to grow uh, till around 90 or so uh, over the next couple of years. And the growth of passwords is actually going to increase significantly to around 300 billion uh, by 2020. So in the space of the next two years, we will triple the number of passwords. But yes, you know, technologies will augment it. We will have application passwords. We will do, use vaults. So that you don't need to remember because uh, security fatigue sets in at around five passwords where the human just doesn't, you know, can't <laughs> process anymore, can't remember anymore. You start reusing the same things or combinations of the same uh, phrases. Um, so, yes, we will have to augment it. We will have to use biometrics to simplify it. Um, however, uh, passwords will continue to grow um, and they will, you know, continue to be augmented. But at the same time, in the background, they are going to be significantly heavily used uh, from machine to machine, application to application, IoT, authentication, connectivity, encryption. Um, it's just the human interaction side will be a little bit uh, simplified, but uh, we will need uh, significant vaults in order to simplify that. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a good point. You know, as security professionals, for years we train our users to say, you know, don't, don't reuse passwords. And <laughs> it kind of sets us up for that point of where, okay, if there's more online services being pushed to the cloud, banking, whatever, you know, our phones, like, well, okay, therefore, if every single device and every single interaction I have is going to have to have its own password, how, how am I, you're not enabling the users to have a way to remember that. Um, so you do have to put those compensating controls like multi-factor authentication or some type of vault. And as I say, with, with most of my, they're both, you know, Thicotic and LastPass and other password management systems. Yeah, I have to uh, multi-factor onto my phone when when I log in. So I go into password of that. Then it has to multi-factor to the phone that has biometrics. So it's just adding in those layers. But I think, you know, what we what we miss as security professionals is is that enablement part for the user, and yeah. that's unfortunate at times. Correct, and that's this is where you know that, that's you're exactly on the point, and it, it was recited you know at, uh, at Black Hat when Alex Stamos from Facebook got up in at the keynote and said that you know we really you know we need a, a people centric approach to security. Uh, we really need to involve people, and we need to make sure it's it's easier, it's transparent. Um, we also as you know security professionals, one thing I can tell you that as I walked around the expo halls and the different uh, briefings and so forth, so forth that I've seen too many um, kind of quotes blaming the users, blaming humans, blaming employees for the breaches, which, okay, there is the statistics that says that, yes, they are at fault. They did have some participation or some, um, you know, role to play in the breach. Um, but I kind of want to make sure it's always important that people understand that, you know, and, and uh, you know, Alex said it right. With we need empathy in regards to to you know sympathizing with uh, and, and users because what's happened is you know technology in the original was was created to help us do our work to make things much more simplified, much more efficient, easier to do our jobs. And what's happened is that you know then when technology fails to secure us and you know it fails to protect us, then it's very quick for you know, to blame the person, not the technology. So we have to understand that there is a balance. There is the need to have a, a, a much simpler, much easier, less complex approach. And to your point, easier enablement. You know, it doesn't need to be too complex and too challenging. Um, it needs to be something that is walks the person through how to simply turn it on and then they just leave it and forget it. It just works in the background. And then when something needs to interact, it will come up and tell them. 
um, security needs to be simpler. And and I always get the point that we can't be doing it like it was when you know I was working in, in starting off in 1999 security. We can't do it the same approach. We can't work when I was rolling out things like uh, CI Unicenter or HP OpenView or you know integration into Remedy, where it took months and you know it took it took six months to get the hardware installed, and it took another year to get the software working. We can't security cannot be at that pace. We can't go at that same uh, pace today. Security. Uh, I, I made a quote recently that if you can't get your security uh, configured and installed in less than a day, you're already behind the actual threats. Um, and that's is where we need to get to the point where security needs to be less complicated, simpler, easier to get out there, dynamic, and also very integrated the more holistic approach into everything that's around and everything that you use, and also simplified into a people-centric approach. And this is really where we need to make a big change. And it's also quite interesting because as I see this change in the industry, um, you know, one of the things you, you had asked earlier is that you know, my introduction, I came from a, a you know, technical support background. I was a data analyst. Then I was a network security operations center. Um, I was doing monitoring, virtualization. So over my career, it's been a very technical role. And what was quite interesting was that a lot of my peers in, in the industry and even some of my you know, good friends in, in UK and, and the US, they're not like coming into this industry because security has been very IT-centric approach. And as far, we've always taken that approach. We've, we've bolted security onto IT. And we will take a very you know, technical approach at security always. And it's created a very complex. Uh, but at the same time, IT was never, we were never good at interacting with people. We were always good at making sure your you know, operating system was running and your application was running. But we always had to have a, a interactive support team who dealt with the people so that we didn't have to. And that has to change. Uh, we need to get much more people-centric uh, security approach. And what I've started seeing is you know, behavior scientists coming in, psychologists coming into the industry. Um, even I've seen people coming from a social services background coming into cybersecurity to really help make sure that we have the translation, the communication to translate security and also to translate the, the people needs so that we have a balance. We need to get to that balance and we need to get to the point where we have a better understanding of people's needs and where security is not meeting them. And therefore, we can actually uh, take that feedback and make products and make technology, make security be more people-centric where there is a balance. And there is also dynamics as well. Uh, security should by, be dynamic or adaptive, as, as you know, some people are calling it, that uh, as the security threats increased, we need to uh, do more security to get access. And as it's, it's reduced, we can, you know, have less obstacles to get through in order to get access. So it has to be uh, the ability to be like a fence. You can raise the security when it's threat's high, and when the threat's lower, you can decrease it. And that's where I get into this really dynamic, people-centric approach of security. Yeah, I think that's that's where we're starting to hopefully see that change. I think where most organizations have kind of failed with security is taking that IT-centric approach. And I, I recently had Lance Spitz, Spitzner on the show, and he was talking about uh, security awareness trainers. He's like, don't don't do the IT staff. You know, get somebody outside of IT to train your your people because we really need to shift the dynamic with inside organizations and enterprises to that people centric approach. Because yeah, we've been doing the same thing for twenty years and it's not working. 
Yep, absolutely. Uh, I could. I was. I was fortunate enough to be part of a project. It was actually it's ten years ago this this year. It's quite interesting that it's ten years ago. I just I just wrote a report uh, recently on the cybersecurity metrics uh, benchmark, which is really about how companies are measuring their success of cybersecurity, which is actually quite shocking of how many companies are not even um, measuring that their cybersecurity technologies or solutions are actually helping the business. It's quite you know the the kind of measurements like third of companies are actually blindly making investments in cybersecurity. They're just going from hearsay or what analysts have told them um, and not really understanding is it helping their business. And I was fortunate enough to be part of a project 10 years ago with a large transportation company and they brought in you know, uh, an analyst and, and consultants to say, okay, evaluate our security. And, and their advice was that you've got too much silo, um, you've got a lot of good metrics, but you're not really making good tangible business uh, risk management of those metrics. They're being focused too much at the silos and not enough contextual uh, into them. And we took that as a, as a very interesting approach and we thought, okay, well, what can we do? Well, you know, Here's the tangible data that we have. This is what we have measured. Is there a thing that we can do with this data to really make it actionable? So they had things like the AV quarantine information. They had information about um, which systems had been unpatched, about bad websites the uh, employees were you know, going to that were infected or were known as malicious. And what they decided to do with all this data, they, they basically stack ranked it and correlated it together. And what they ended up finding was that it was actually quite surprising, well, probably not surprising, but for us at the time, we were, you know, the, the data results that were coming in was quite, you know, quite uh, interesting. That when they stack ranked the data, well over 100,000 employees, and what they found was that those that were set in the center or the bullseye of all of the risk was less than a thousand people. Oh wow! So, so now you're looking at thousand people are representing. It was around 80 plus percent of the entire risk. Unpatched systems hadn't rebooted, hadn't loaded antivirus update. They were always remote. They hadn't got the latest software installed, and they were going to bad websites. And that risk, kind of, the correlation of that risk generated a much higher threat. So what they ended up going through was they decided that with those 1,000 people, they now had a target. They now had something that they could measure and action. So they went through a cyber hygiene uh, education awareness at the time that all of those people had to go through. Some was in person, depending on the size of the site. Uh, some was online, to, you know, remote locations and so forth. But over the space of six months, they they started going through this training and they trained and trained. And over the space of six months, they trained around 600 plus people. And significantly, as they were measuring it, they had tangible data to show that what they were doing was actually reducing the risk of the organization. Um, and it was quite impressive that you know that was an approach that was taken. And organizations should take a similar approach to really managing the risk and the actual uh, the mitigation of the risk rather than managing security as a technology um, and really helping understand what actions you can make uh, to really make an impact to the organization. And at the same time, that organization identified that, you know what, our actually, if our employees families and homes are better secure, then we're ex expanding our perimeter security as well to the people, to the identities. And what they end up deciding was that we're going to expand, actually offer um, our, you know, the security products that they were purchasing for even just simple antivirus, identity protection, and, and anti-malware. They expanded the offering to their home personal computers because they know that at the time there was a change into attackers and hackers and criminals 
not only targeting the, the employees' work devices, but it was easier to compromise their personal devices and their family and then laterally move from there to their corporate devices. It was easier to do that method than it was to attack them directly through their own uh, firewalls and perimeter. So they decided at that time that actually if we can expand the security um, to, to the employee's home, and the employees then seen it as, well, it's not just about the company, it's about me and my family. Therefore, they actually took a much more um, acceptive approach um, and became more countable and more of a mindset change, which was quite significant. Um, and it was quite impressive to see the, the transition over that time. Um, and I think that you know it's something that all organizations can learn from today. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's that kind of changing the security culture with inside an organization. And it's it, you know, interesting enough, you had, a, you had a blog piece earlier this year about people sharing passwords with their family and partner. <laughs> and this is not, it's come up in my household. And, and how do you recommend their, you know, you kind of develop that culture at home and how do, how should people share passwords or not uh, at home? Um, I, what I come down to is the sensitivity of the data behind it um, is that you go through a process of classifying data um, and then you decide that, well, is this something that only I should have access to? Um, and that if I need to give anyone access to it, then I don't give them the password. I actually create an account or actually create a, a delegation that they can access it. Um, so well, I think the best example, it's, it's great that I, I'm based in Estonia, where Estonia has been the identity innovator in the world. They, 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 it was quite interesting, Estonia's journey into where they are today. Um, Estonia has a uh, complete uh, citizen digital identity, um, which is government issued. They've got digital signatures. We have e-residency. We have blockchain implementation. Um, so it really comes down to that everything, the government has an easy way to identify the citizen and the citizen is full control of their data. And what you can do with that digital identity uh, system is you can delegate rights to access your data. Um, so that's a similar thing to, to you know, sharing within your own kind of personal information. Um, you should be able to classify that data into sensitivity and be able to delegate and, and, and share the rights. So what I typically would do is I would um, have that data classified that um, what's very sensitive, you know, financial information, um, medical information that you don't want to share. Um, and if you need to, then you can delegate so that they can use their own identity to access it and you're not giving them your own password and so forth. Um, and that, you know, you can use vaults are great ways to be able to manage that and simplify that. And it also gives you great auditing ability as well so that um, you can see when somebody's using their own account, they're accessing that information and therefore you can actually trace it back to the original identity and not just that, you know, if you have a shared account like admin, that who was the admin at the time using that account, you have no idea unless you can really track back to IP address and, and other types of, of monitoring data. Uh, but if you have a delegated, designated uh, association of accounts, um, it's much better to manage. It's much more easier to audit. And therefore, you have also accountability and the ability to trace it back to the original person um, that was accessing it. Definitely. I mean, it, it comes down to a lot of uh, security basics that I think that we see is, and I, I had a, a, a podcast that I did recently on my own, which is saying, look, there's so many organizations that get brought into, um, and it comes down to the basics of, you know, uh, poor identity management, poor inventory control, not knowing where their data is. It, it seems to be that, that, that you know, we, we struggle with the basics at times, and people do want to kind of overreach and get that next gen or X gen or whatever they're marketing at RSA or Black Hat. 
Yep, it's 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 bolting on. It's it's bolting onto the same thing after the same thing. It's adding next generation in front of something that <laughs> is doing the same thing. Um, it it was quite interesting. Uh, I just uh, we basically when I was a black hat in DefCon, I did a lot of research. I I, um, I had a team that basically did a, a survey of a, a close to three hundred um, self proclaimed hackers during the event. And what we really get into is really want to understand what you know what works and what doesn't work what what should companies be thinking about you know what makes their job easier and what makes it more difficult we really wanted to get it directly from those who are either doing it for good or bad um and we want to understand you know what is what what's irrelevant or obsolete for them today so we just released today our, our black hat report which is is always quite interesting I mean, it's we've been doing it for several years now and the results are quite interesting that um from Majority of black hat um, uh, hackers, both black hats, gray hats, and also white hats, that uh, over 70% of them um, are actually stating that antivirus, anti-malware, and firewalls are irrelevant in today's uh, security uh, perimeter. They're saying that it's so easy to circumvent them and bypass them that the value that they're adding uh, for companies today is, is, is very little. Um, so it was quite interesting to kind of go through that, and, and we wanted to understand well, why is it? Why what? Why are those becoming irrelevant? And if we look at last year, we look at the trends in 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 what has been the techniques that hackers are doing. They're exploiting real people's identities. They're stealing trusted, authenticated, approved identities. Uh, over three billion were stolen in 2016. Um, you know, compromised accounts, weak credentials, um, disclosed in the dark web. And ultimately, hackers are then selling those on to other criminals that then use them to gaining access. And if an organization sitting and they've got their firewalls, they've got their AVs, they've got everything running, um, if you see a, a trusted, real account that's being used during the times and schedules that it's expected to be, how can you tell the difference that that's actually your employee or a hacker who's compromised that data. And this is what hackers are doing. The techniques are basically using those compromised, trusted, real accounts to gain access. And that allows them to then do the elevation to exploit within. So it becomes almost like an insider threat of using those uh, um, abused accounts. So it really makes those perimeter types of controls and other types of malicious uh, 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 kind of downloads or, 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 or vulnerabilities very redundant. And it really means that when we got into asking hackers, well, what makes your job more challenging? And I said, when, um, if you're managing your privilege accounts, you're doing multi-factor authentication because then it means that in multi-factor authentication, what is done right, you need to then have a physical compromise, not just a, a, an identity compromise. Uh, and also encryption. If you do those very well, it makes their job more difficult. If you're encrypting sensitive data, you're challenging the employee uh, uh, periodically um, or based on, on, on different metrics uh, for multi-factor authentication. That means that uh, they have a physical uh, way to, to prove their identity. And they're also making sure that they don't have uh, unfederated access to sensitive accounts. It makes the hacker's job much more difficult. Um, and it means that really the employee, the identity of the employee, the access controls, the level of trust, and the uh, access to sensitive data and the protection of that data 
um, and the access controls is really where organizations need to fo- they need to do a focus from the inside out and rather than looking you know from the perimeter and then bolting on it's like having a door that you're putting 100 locks on you're putting alarms you're putting monitoring and you've left the window open yeah essentially and that that you know when we when, when my team's done pen tests before, it's it's almost always that we get a we get credentials uh, and, and move laterally, and the and it's, it goes undetected for for escalation. And you certainly see it with ransomwares too. Is you know it, it's very effective at f- making sure a user clicks on something that they then have access to an open access to share to write to everything on that share and lock down everything. It's just the you know just. <laughs> You know, not maintaining that that type of um, access controls that should be in place can really mitigate a lot of the threats. And it goes back to to you know in in this report as well that we conducted, um, it shows that you know the hackers do say that eighty percent of the 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 cause is is the human side of it, and which goes back to our need to have that people centric security is to have it much easier and have it much more transparent. Um, and that that what's is what makes a difference. Uh, I find a lot of phishing campaigns that we've run in the past. Um, it's been so easy to to really uh, send very well constructed phishing campaigns to employees, and almost getting 100% success uh, rate of clicking, um, or downloading, or compromising their credentials. Um, it's much easier to ask the employee um, for the password than it is to try and, uh, and and basically extract it from them. Yeah, it, it's crazy how well the uh, social engineering campaigns work um, when you just, again, just call up and ask them for the password and they give it to you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Or, or, or their child. Their child already has the password yeah. as well. <laughs> now, you, you said you were also doing, when we, before we kind of hit record, you were doing some other research that you're going to publish um, towards the end of the month. What's, what's some of the other things that you have been researching re- lately? Um, so what I'm writing is is uh, a new research paper. So I just finished uh, a couple of things, which was the uh, the Black Hat report and the cybersecurity uh, metrics report. The next one I'm working in is, is really I want to to. There's two pieces of uh, reports that I'm writing. Uh, one is is it's about uh, really the techniques that hackers are using today to really gain access to organizations. And this report is called the Anatomy of a Privilege Account Hack, and it really walks through some of the actual nature of the methods and techniques that hackers are doing today to really compromise, to really do well constructive phishing campaigns, targeting family, um, targeting uh, children in order to really gain access and then move laterally into organizations. So it's gonna discuss some of the techniques and some of the uh, real world scenarios that I've been participating in the past and really help people understand that you need to be looking at this is the, the methods it's been used today and really help educate that these are the mindset um, and the, um, the kind of the methods that we go through. So therefore, you need to think of security controls that applies to each of those areas. So it's really kind of giving a, a, a kind of insights into a hacker's view of how they approach things like passive assessments and recon, where most of the time is spent, and then kind of once that data has been gathered, how they utilize it in order to manipulate, compromise, and ultimately gain access. Um, so that's one report that will be available later this month in August. Uh, another piece that I'm writing, which is another kind of hidden area uh, of research that I have been doing uh, for the past number of years, which is the evolution of uh, insider uh, trading. Um, so insider trading with known historically to be done by internal employees that have access to confidential data. However, 
um, the new evolution of the new era is that actually inside trading of companies' assets and confidential information has actually been done by hackers. They are actually gaining access to that uh, legal case or the settlement or the acquisition or the new quarter financial results. They're getting visibility. And what they're doing is the best way of hackers making the most profit is actually doing it in such a way that it's legal. So therefore, investing in a stock market of companies by having that insider knowledge, making vast amounts of profit in a legal method by having access to uh, unauthorized uh, uh, sensitive confidential information. So that's another uh, report that will be an article that I've, I've written that will be published um, later this month as well. Yeah, that, that'll be definitely interesting. I've worked in the legal vertical for the past few years, and that was kind of what I was screaming from the hilltops a little bit that, look, I can go after Citibank or JP Morgan, but they spend millions and millions of dollars on security. However, they're trusted advisors, they're financial advisors, they're uh, accountants, they're legal firms. I, look, we even saw it happen with HVAC companies in, yep. <laughs> in certain attacks. But it's it's the third-party vendors that have access to the sensitive information that once you get it, you can leverage it. And I, and I think that's what's overlooked a lot of times is that, that third-party kind of assessment of, okay, where is this data going to go? And if somebody got it, how can they how can they actually leverage this for things like insider trading? We have seen that in the legal space where there was the mm -hmm. potash instance a few years ago in Canada. You know, people get this yep. information, they leverage it, and it has much more value than a credit card information. And it's trying uh -huh. to change people's mindset that attackers are not after just the you know smash and grab anymore. They're they're much more deliberate and thoughtful these days. Uh, absolutely, it's quite interesting. One one of the other pieces is that. Um, we're talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and uh, all of this kind of ways to to identify um, attackers. And what's quite interesting is, is that the communities that I kind of I participate in to 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 learn and and, and to uh, and get my my research is that do you know what uh, cyber criminals have been using that for a number of years now in order to actually do intelligent targeting um, that. They're using their own machine learning. They're using the same tools. They're actually getting them accessing and then using that information in order to how to better target uh, those companies. Um, so, yes, we, we have to understand that uh, there is a vast amount of intelligence. These are smart people. They, they, they spend a lot of their time um, learning. They're very pa uh, passionate about what they do. And uh, yeah, absolutely. So sometimes the techniques that I've seen um, is sometimes quite quite surprising. I've even seen uh, in the past where a light bulb uh, was used as the gaining access uh, for an organization. Um, so and also um, sound been used to extract data. Mm -hmm. They actually did an audio signal to move data from one uh, uh, network to another. And it was quite impressive that you see that how uh, kind of out of the box thinking and how kind of uh, they use those kind of they don't have boundaries they don't have limitations in time and they're very kind of thought they, they're very well rounded they understand a lot about radio signals communications network security coding and having all of that skill sets they're able to leverage each of those different uh, knowledge and areas in order to really uh, make things uh, uh, to their advantage that we would uh, typically be limited to. Yeah, we, we, we are unfortunate as defenders in kind of an asymmetric warfare where they have unlimited resources and time or we're not always gifted with that. But one of the things, too, is also the resources of the human uh, of kind of getting more people. Uh, and I've touched on this in other podcasts, but, you know, there's this 
you know, we need more people in the industry. And we, you and I were talking before we hit record on this as well. Is, you know, how, where are some other areas that you would think that we can recruit people to come into security that might not be from the, say, traditional IT fields? Uh, that's uh, that's I mean that's a great point. One of the things I've seen historically, where I've seen people coming into the security industry, has been really from the sysadmin, the IT administrator, or, you know, sometimes the software engineer, um, moving into security, um, and that's been the traditional uh, methods of getting into the industry. Um, but to be honest, it, it's it's well kind of broadened now. I've seen people coming in from uh, social services, people who communicate with people, they listen to you know the problems and challenges, and they look at ways you know that human interaction side um i was involved in human interaction when it came to how you look at a screen and how you sit in a chair and and how well you straight your back is and and where your hands are rested that was my human computer interaction um but today it's really about the mindset the emotional side of things um how it impacts you uh from the way that you actually uh, behave um so i'm seeing a lot of uh people coming in and it's also great to get a lot of diversity um, to make sure that we actually get um, a lot of different mix of cultures, um, you know, backgrounds, um, gender into the industry to really kind of look at this from different aspects in order to really look at the human people-centric approach. Um, so, yeah, I'm seeing it kind of changing from all different aspects, from education to psychology side of things, behavior scientists, data scientists, all starting to kind of come together and really look at this from a much more broader perspective. Yeah, no, I, th- I think we have to start uh, kind of looking outside of the traditional IT fields, and that's some some great advice. Um, so, I really appreciate you taking the time today to speak to me. So, where else can people find you? What else are you up to? Where uh, people can find some of your research and work? Um, most people can follow me on uh, Twitter. I, I do uh, release all my research papers through my Twitter feed. Um, so it's Joe underscore Carson, um, which is my Twitter handle. And then also on LinkedIn, I, I do post a lot of my articles and reports via LinkedIn. Um, or on the psychotic.com website, you can go and check out my blogs and uh, other research papers that I write. So those would be the th- three main mediums that uh, – um, I would be uh, uh, posting and having my followers uh, at least learn and keep up to date with what I'm doing. Definitely. I'll be sure to put that all in the show notes so people can find you. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, Joe, I greatly appreciate, appreciate you taking the time today to speak to me. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Absolutely. I, I very much enjoy it. And uh, hopefully that uh, the listeners will, will get, to get a lot of good insights and uh, learn uh, some interesting aspects of, uh, of security and how to really uh, evolve and, and, and protect what they do in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.